a father. My children are 13 years old. I have 13-year-old triplets. I got two black boys and a black girl. And when you hear these types of incidents, first thing I think of is I'm 50 years old, and now my children have to deal with what I was dealing with at their age. And I'm on their working group and their email thread, and everybody there is talking about all the work that needs to be done, social justice and equity, right? I wrote an email that stated, that's fine, but have you looked at your own board? Who's controlling the narrative and talking about this? Do they look like people like me or do they look like people like you? I basically grew up in a family that always had the fear of being homeless. Even as a young adolescent, I was able to feel the fear of not being able to make that rental payment. The man that I was at 25 is not the man that I am today. I wasn't as supportive as I should have been, but the moment that I held my daughter in the hospital, that's when the excitement happened, right? To to hold her in my arms, that moment changed my life. The director came up to me and said, thanks for coming in. Gotta admit, you are our second choice. And I was like, oh, he said, yeah, there was another guy. I think he went to RADA. He was clearly one of the best actors I've ever seen. His resume was outstanding. Uh, but we chose you because we thought in this context, it was better to have a real mechanic. <laughs> and I was like, Okay. From the frustration and joys that come with raising black children in this day and age to the compromises made and challenges faced in different industries, Black Men Speak discusses the unique and shared experience of being a black man in America. Each week I interview fellow black men who work in a variety of fields and have confronted and overcome the limitations placed on them in our society. Black Men Speak is hosted by me, Keith Dent. The music was composed by Common Interest. You can follow Black Men Speak on Facebook to watch our live stream conversations. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Libsyn. We hope you can join our community. Hello, Keith here. With the pandemic and its effects on the black and brown communities, and the continued violence by the police against black men, there have been a lot of things impacting our mental health. On today's show, we're going to talk about black mental health and what are the barriers to us receiving the care we need and how we can become more educated as a community so we can break the stigma around mental health challenges. And to help with that, we'll be two brothers that have been at the forefront of this issue for a long time. Michael Cox, a therapist from Whole Life Priorities, and Brandon Williams of Williams Counseling and Consulting. So let's get to it. So before we uh, before we really get into the the nitty gritty, uh, some of the issues uh, that our African American men are are having and that you guys are seeing, uh, let's talk about you know your journeys. Uh, what led you to to decide to become a counselor? And Brandon, you can go first. Well, you know, I, I give, uh, there, I think there were a lot of things, but the one that stands out the most, I was born and raised in New Orleans. For me, growing up in a single parent home uh, with just my uh, mom, older brother, faced a lot of hardship and a lot of different things that I've always wanted to, to just kind of figure out why, right? Watching uh, the community that I grew up in and the different hardships that we dealt with uh, as I matriculated through school and had different opportunities with different mentors, it made me just curious and to 
figure out that there were some ways and some conversations that could be had in education, a, a study of families and how to support uh, men, women, uh, especially and specifically of color from my community has always been a drive to my passion and turning it around, wanting to hopefully heal in areas that can change the next generation, you know? Oh, that's great. That's great. And what about you, Michael? So I think I've always been a helper. I remember early on, I wanted to be a doctor. That was where I was headed all of my life. I was headed to med school. Uh, then I got to science and decided I don't like science. So it's going to be kind of hard <laughs> to become a doctor. <laughs> and so I, I guess I knew I wanted to help people. At the time, one of my mentors was a youth pastor. And uh, I was like, well, I guess that's the route I was going. And so I actually was a minister for 13 years prior to this. And actually, as I was a minister, I remember being encountered with many families and young people that were dealing with issues that I just didn't feel equipped to, to deal with. And the other end of that is I kept feeling like the church was looking down on me because I was helping mm. folks that were outside of the church because of some of the issues that were happening. And I just did not feel equipped. So I felt like, man, I need to go back to school and figure out what this is. And that really was that simple. I uh, went back and, and got my degree in counseling. These folks were coming to me um, and I seemed to be, my wife and I especially were always in front of young people and their families that were dealing with extreme issues and just didn't feel equipped to do that. And I think it's important to think about though is I never had a, the mindset of counseling, mental health, mental illness. I don't even remember those terms growing up. I just kind of knew I wanted to help people. So it was interesting to see where the journey has come that it has shifted from just helping to be able to do something more specific like counseling. So that's kind of the quick of it. Okay. You know, we, we've had some challenges, mental health and seeking out uh, support. So for example, 20% of African-Americans, they have serious psychological issues, but yet we are the least likely to seek mental treatment. So what have you guys seen uh, prior, you know, once you kind of started it and is there a kind of a shift now to black men seeking therapy? I, I see a shift and what I see a shift more in is towards healthcare in general. When I see black men becoming more knowledgeable, being able to kind of access care, and we talk when we talk about things from diabetes all the way, you know, to high blood pressure, mental illness kind of fits in there. And I think specifically for black men, uh, this question always uh, kind of links to that notion of resiliency, that notion of strength, right? And some of the invisible pressures oftentimes that uh, we have and feel as uh, African-American men that go unspoken. But I think in this, this newer generation, I definitely, you know, with podcasts just like this and many of the different efforts going on across the globe, the conversations are beginning. Now, whether or not we're necessarily seeing that in the numbers just yet, I'm not sure, but I definitely think Black men are being pushed and feeling more motivated to say, I have to look at myself more holistically, right? Not just as a provider, not just as a man or a husband or you know, in those, sometimes those, those confining spaces, but they're able to kind of say, okay, I want to be here for my family long-term. And so realizing that things and concepts like, you know, anxiety and depression play just as much of a vital role to my survival, my family's survival as heart attack or, or uh, some of the other things that are happening in our world, right? It's uh, kind of keeping that in mind is is, is my notion of uh, seeing that shift. Yeah, I, you know, the first thing is I think about, it's always interesting when I think about statistics, because I one, we already know that there 
many black men are experiencing mental health challenges, but there are fewer getting treatment. So where are we getting numbers from? Um, it's always right. interesting. It's like, all right, so if they're not seeking the treatment, how do we have the numbers? And so that's always interesting to me. But I think the other is, I think there's a shift. Um, and I think the only reason there's a shift is I think because the conversation, like many other conversations are um, opening up, I think that shift is happening with a younger generation. I think there's still an older generation that's probably in that same mentality of we don't talk about it, we don't say anything, we just move on. And so I think there is a shift, but I think it's by generation as opposed to a demographic of people. That being said, I think one of the obstacles is why men are not doing it is because maybe they don't feel like there's a relatability. And you and I were talking about a little bit, Keith, earlier is I'm one of very few black male therapists in the Austin area. And so someone that they can see that looks like them and feel like they can relate to is huge. And so that shift isn't happening. Maybe there's guys that desire that, that want that, uh, that help, but don't feel like who they see out there, who they see as the individuals providing that help is not someone that they can relate to their experience. And then the other end of that is uh, I just had a call this week where a gentleman said he reached out. But he was a little hesitant to talk to me. He wanted a female because he goes, there might be some crying involved. And I said, well, it's therapy, bro. Crying is probably part of the criteria. But that's part of that stigma that's still there. And this is a young man that was still there of, you know, I still have to maintain my macho if I'm before another man. And did it did it bring him down to say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit and I just told him, I said, one, I'll tell you, there, it depends on what's going on. I might be crying with you um, <laughs> was the response. But the other was that just have, it's a safe place that it, that's part of the process. And if crying is part of your healing, then that may be part of it. I mean, another thing was I said for you with therapy, being able to relate, connect with your therapist is extremely important. And so that may be me as a black male and it may be a black female or a white female, whomever you feel, but connecting with someone is important part of that process. Um, he had tried someone before that was not of the same ethnicity and he felt like there wasn't a connection. And so I told him that, well, if crying is your biggest barrier, then you've got other things to overcome and we can work through that. Yeah, that's great. And it's interesting. One of my shows that I watch is This Is Us. And, the, and they there was a dialogue between Stone K. Brown, the, the head lead, if you watch it, and he was talking to uh, another black man, uh, Omar Epps' character, and he tried to Sterling tried to say, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't need it, or you know, my running is therapy." And Omar just basically said, "Look, I've done it. Uh, it's just conversation." And so we have to somehow start to break that stigma mm-hmm. uh, because we, we one in the as one of the major we're not raised to talk. And that's one of the biggest, <laughs> one of the biggest challenges. We're not raised, <laughs> we're not raised to talk. We're raised to to uh, showcase, I guess, physical attributes more so, and, and mm-hmm. it winds up being, you know, over time that ends up tend tend to being a detriment than an advantage. But I think there is also a historical strength that I see from many of the men that I speak with that goes unspoken amongst us as well, right? That we talk about the influence of historically that strength being passed down generation after generation within black and brown men right that there is that that bravado that that macho-ness that you all are talking about but oftentimes what i find i have this conversation with men that it's an unconscious strength right that that 
it's not something that they're always conscientious of, right? And so having to really kind of um, talk about what that is and how it gets there without you even maybe even consciously doing it uh, is a big part for men as well, that, that you have to kind of explore with them uh, to really kind of just help them let down those guards. Because a lot of it's defense men. Yeah. And, and Michael in- mentioned something quite interesting as well, because he said that, um, you know, when he started exploring, you know, getting using outside help or looking into that to try to help uh, the students that he was working with, he is looked down upon. And so so our therapy is supposed to be is God and God only <laughs> or deacons or pastors. So that that's. You know that's a big that's a big thing to overcome. Yeah, you got you got a whole another uh, mountain to climb. You put any spiritual aspect on it, right? It's now uh, not just within a culture. Now it's a a weakness if you uh, are relying on anything other than God. Brandon, you brought this up earlier. I think it's uh, that conversation I have on a regular basis with men is in our community. We don't. Well, I guess men probably actually are kind of the same way. We heard about going to the doctor, um, but there's not nearly the amount of stigma when you've got high blood pressure or you've got something else going on. There's not the stigma around getting outside help, but something when it comes to mental health problems within a sp- specifically in the church or within the spiritual community, there is something wrong with it because why aren't you getting manning up or you're just not praying hard enough um, or some of those things. And that becomes, I think, part of the weight is because men are thinking, well, maybe they feel they're faithful. Maybe they feel they're praying. Those things are, but yet I'm still feel some sort of way. And so not allowing them to realize that there are ways to find that help. That doesn't mean that that person is weak or any of those things. It's just that they're seeking out help that's provided. And we would do the same thing if any other illness or something else has gone on and we don't look down on it in the church or in the community. Yeah. And it's probably the reason why tied to younger generations where they are more apt to seek uh, outside help is because they're also not as tied to the church as much as we as we are. You know, and I think there is a different conversation, as I mentioned earlier. I honestly think I was in college before I ever even heard the term mental illness other than a school counselor. I don't know if I really heard about a counselor. It just was not terminology I heard anything about. Um, and so maybe they existed and they were obviously they were out there, but it's not something I heard. And so now I think it's something that there's a generation of people that are hearing it more, seeing that it's not a bad thing or a negative thing to go and access those services. Um, so I think the conversation is definitely more. We didn't use those terms. I saw, I think it was um, someone is uh, being hurt by the police and, and they were questioning the family and they said, well, he, I knew he had the demons. And so that would be interesting to kind of touch upon this. Why do you think we as a black community struggle with just labeling mental health and family with mental health issues? I think you hit it right on the nail right on the head in that, and it goes back to that historical perspective on on things is that we, we don't have the vocabulary, right? Our vocabulary and those things uh, when that it takes to kind of label in a more positive way comes through what our foundation is, and and historically, our foundation is spirituality, right? And we and and really being able to kind of explore that uh, in looking at the impact of you know being a more spiritually focused group, but not necessarily a health focused group, in seeing my body, my mind, uh, and those experiences. But you know, there's not the there's not the vocabulary there. But I think mm-hmm. it's been a part of 
of, I think it really becomes on how you look at it, right? So there's a there's a piece that say, hey, Mitch, spiritual, being able to be a spiritual is what leads to the resiliency as well, right? That surpasses other races, right? And oftentimes, those are statistics that I would love to start to see as well. But it is things when we look at a uh, a different culture, a different vocabulary, uh, stigma reaches its way back in there. And, and I think while we don't like to use the word, it can be tied to just ignorance about the subject, right? Because it's not our cup of tea. It's not something our moms and our dads and our grandpas talk about. So to hear it just sounds bad, right? Mm, right. <laughs> Well, you think about it, even thinking historically, we never, we didn't have access. So all we had was the church or the gospel, right? And so access to doctors, hospitals, or we were used as the experimentation, you know, when it comes to drug and those things. And so there's that automatic negative connotation that's there. And so to want to even say that they're struggling through some of those things, there's still that tie to what historically has been either put upon us or taken on um, in our community. And so what men, specifically black men, have had to experience over that time period, you don't want to be tied to that. And there are still many who either have lived through those things or are close enough to it to have those stories. And so it's not a conversation that's had because there's so much pain, I think, that is still there and not able to move forward. And now, like I said, all we had was our faith. Right, right. Absolutely. And so from a professional, I guess, uh, in the professional sense, you know, what are some of the barriers that you, you guys have had in the industry, being the fact that there's not many of you in the industry? And what have you guys had to kind of do uh, to overcome become those things? I think barriers, until I moved to Austin, I felt like I was an island because I was doing this work in this field but didn't see people that looked like me doing the work, much less people receiving the services. And so I think even as a black professional, specifically a mental health professional, it was like, where do I relate and what, what does that mean within a community? But on the contrary, I actually feel like, I don't know if I feel that there's many barriers. I actually feel like it's a benefit. And my, at least where I sit is I'm an anomaly. Actually, I got called a unicorn. Uh, we were doing something. I was in this, this group that there's a Facebook group that we have here in the Austin area. We were called unicorn because there's only about maybe a good handful to 12 black male therapists in the area. I think when people start seeking that out, um, I don't do much advertising and I don't do much marketing and don't need to. I don't, I've got plenty of clients. And so I think some of that is because of who I am. Yeah. So I, I think when it comes to barriers, I think that vocabulary becomes a piece of it. But I think that just as Michael said, it's just about exposure. Finances can sometimes be a barrier in our communities, right? Where to be able to afford or to overcome those barriers of being able to access care or access different levels of service can be uh, different hurdles for our communities in general. But I think, uh, just as Michael said, being only one of a few in our areas, it's just about kind of getting that word out there. You know, one thing I'd add probably to that is bigger time is education is a barrier. Part of a movement that Brandon and I are both a part of how we got to meet each other um, is part of that public education piece where it's being able to educate our folks. I think that's one of the, I mean, even as recent to a year ago, sitting in, into a, a local forum of black leaders and literally hearing an individual who's a prominent individual talk about how mental health isn't even a problem in our community. It's not even a real thing. So 
education, um, being able to educate our people on the facts and the information that's out there because we know people are struggling. We know people are having difficulty, but when you have prominent leaders who are making opposite statements, uh, it's really tough. And so our people are not getting the appropriate education about what is mental illness, what is what are mental health problems, and there are solutions and they're not that scary and you can get access to those services. And so I think education is huge. That, and that's quite interesting that that would uh, he would mention that only because in the last few months, we've seen individuals where uh, mental health was an issue and they lost their lives because of it. Walter Wallace, you know, and Daniel Prude, Walter Wallace was the, the most recent person that he was in Philly. His mother called the police and said, you know, please help. My son has mental illness, walking around with a knife. Unfortunately, he was killed by the police because he wouldn't put down a weapon or what have you. And then uh, Daniel Prude had mental challenges as he was naked in the street and um, was killed. The fact that he mentioned that there's no mental illness is, is a shame, but wanted to touch upon this issue um, because, you know, obviously they lost their life by the police. From your training or you know, in your education, why do the police have such a difficult time handling those individuals? Woo, you take a big one. So I'm, I'm gonna give it a shot. Uh, so one, I think that's a conversation that there's a lot with reform around policing that needs to happen that is in mental health is an additional thing with that i think that it's another one of those places where twofold this may not be directly answer your questions within my thoughts on it one our community um, to be able to help educate our community i think that mother did exactly everything that she could do um, and being able to say this is a mental health problem this is what's going on why they didn't approach it differently i have no idea there are galore we're even part of an organization that um, teaches police officers and educates and trains around how to differently approach those things, why they're not using those services, why they're not utilizing those trainings. I can't, I really honestly can't speak to that. It's available. And uh, training for officers, there's extensive trainings that are out there for officers and how to differently engage. And there are many communities that use it. Um, I've had a personal experience where an individual had a similar experience and it was handled well um, by the police, but some of that was because there were multiple people involved in that process. So the why, I honestly, probably make a lot of money, Brandon, if we, we could answer the, the why. <laughs> Just kind of like Michael said, there are a lot of things. I think there are a lot of factors there, right? But I think some of the cores are stigma and fear. And oftentimes in de-escalating situations, we see how powerful those factors become, especially in those that have a position of authority. And not only that, I think one of the other kind of unspoken pieces of stigma and fear is what they're fearing. One of the things that goes unspoken is that to be Black, there is a fear associated with it. There is a stigma associated with it, but to also be mentally ill or to have a mental illness, there's a stigma. So I think when you put both of those together, oftentimes those things are inhibitors to being able to de-escalate in a way that is more humanizing, in a way that allows compassion and love and understanding to come in. And I think a lot of uh, our officers, when we talk about some of the training that has to go on, we've got to come back to love, Keith. 
You know, we've got to come back to a place that if you're going to have so much power, and and like I said, I I don't come down on all of our officers. We know we've got some great uh, law enforcement officers out there, but when you've got so much power, there has to be a chance and an opportunity to, to lead more with your heart, especially when in the prime, there's so much stigma, there's so much unconscious bias and fear specifically to a certain group and race of people. Yeah, I mean, I get I get that. And we do, there is a stigma. And then it's almost like a trifecta almost. Mental illness, being black, and fear of just the, also the high stress of being, just being in the situation. But I want to go back to, Michael, what you said. So you had mentioned that you had a situation that came out well. There were a lot of people involved. So what are those people and what were their kind of the roles? I think one was my role as a professional. Those friends of this individual knew to contact me and so connected me to this person. It was a personal friend and knew to connect me. But I also knew who to call our local mental health authority um, and our crisis team to call them who also knew to call the police, say, this is who you need to get out there. This is what's going on. Community members were aware of, hey, this is beyond what we can do. So we need to get somebody else that can help. So one up. Um, Then for myself as a professional to know what to do and kind of engage with that. Not everybody has that, right? Not everybody can call their friend that's a counselor. Like that's kind of why I mentioned that from that mother's perspective, she was very clear. He is having a mental health challenge which should be enough. But I think it's part of that knowing what our resources are available. And that's where it goes back to education is what are our resources and can we maybe head some of that off at the pass? We don't know that full story, right? I don't know everything that was behind that and what was done prior to that. And so that was just that personal experience that we had that it turned out well because of those series of events. It could have been very similar events that happened in that situation. And unfortunately it did not turn out that way. And so does every city have a have a crisis team that can be called upon? Yeah, it depends on the size of the city, depends on where it is. But no, not everybody does. Not everybody has a what's called a mobile crisis outreach team where they will go to the individual, usually with the assistance of a trained police officer. But no, it's not available everywhere. Usually in bigger cities, um, it is less available in more rural and suburban areas. But no, not everybody does. So like Philly would have had a mobile crisis team. I would, I would guess so, but the size city, you know, you think about it, that size and the, I can think about the Austin area, the small amount of workers to the population. Yeah. I I would think they probably do, but yeah, I don't know that. I don't know. They didn't even have tasers, so who knows? <laughs> they, exactly. they probably didn't have, they probably didn't, so they probably didn't have a crisis. Yeah, <laughs> there's a whole lot of shudders in that one. So one of the things, other things is that, um, you know, in African-American men, 15 to 24 is the third leading cause of death is suicide. Uh, 20 to 24 is the highest. Um, and these are stats. I don't know what, what the year this came out, but clearly there's, there is a issue with um, suicide for our young folks. Uh, so my question really is early intervention is important. And how do we go about, in your professional opinions, going about trying to reach some of our younger folk uh, that are dealing with these these issues? I think a key to it is education, just like we were talking about earlier, right? And hitting them probably in a place where they receive most of that knowledge, school, right? And it being a part of sometimes their core curriculum. But I think education is a big part of helping them to be able to 
just gain that knowledge earlier to be able to start to build foundation to uh, like we're talking about, right? Vocabulary and general knowledge about where do I go? Who can I reach out to? Uh, unraveling uh, some of the stigma and stereotypes around some of those difficulties and normalizing some of those experiences that we've all been through is vital, right, for our teens and, and helping them to be able to see, hey, there's life past your current situation, right, I think is a, is a big part. And so to be able to give that early education, it doesn't even have to be anything as high of a level of care as going to therapy, but to just be able to have dialogue, education, and sometimes in the simplest of, of forms, I think can go a long way. Yeah, and I think appropriate education, right? Because right now, I can't tell you how many times a young person comes in my office and has a diagnosis that they created off of Google. The unfortunate thing that we have is young people have access to so many things and therefore, you know, sometimes the, it's kind of trendy right now to have depression or anxiety and those things. So I think appropriate information and education is necessary because our young people are struggling. They are experiencing a lot of things. And so they are talking about it. They're talking about it with their peers. They're looking it up. So they need the appropriate education. But I also think we need adults who are appropriately engaging young people and helping them understand what does it look like to have and deal with things to be able to model for them that it's okay not to be okay um, and where to appropriately find that help, right? We, we pass this stuff on if they're watching. If I, as a man, if having to stuff everything and just go on about my business because that's what I'm supposed to do, these young men behind me are watching that. And so how am I modeling for them? How are we as adults modeling for them the appropriate way to seek out help and that's okay? What is the language? What, is the, the, what are the stigmatizing, uh, red, stigma reduction things that we're doing to help them see that it's okay to seek out that help? It also a long way when they see people they recognize, like for example, with Dak Prescott and, and saying that, you know, he had some mental challenges and i'm sure that's that was probably one of the first times you'd heard you know a sports celebrity that's a pretty big deal because you know most of us would think well why why do you have any issues you you're you know you're playing for the number one uh rated franchise and the cowboys you know you're you're making plenty of money you're a good looking man but you know so what's the issue it really went a long way to for him to do that so uh yeah you guys may have to just create a tiktok reiterate what michael said man if i just pull from personal experience and to just think back to growing up and how much it would help to hear a man say hey i'm feeling sad it would almost open up an entirely new world to a lot of our young people that they don't even know that they can exist in, you know, mm-hmm. modeling goes a long, long way. Yeah, I mean, it was powerful. I mean, at um, when I used to work uh, for a nonprofit organization and I worked with the football team um, as an academic advisor, if we could just, you know, somehow if we can move the mask that we have personally and just share, you know, that'll really, you know, really go a long way to, yeah. to, to kind of destigmatizing not just uh, mental health, but just overall health in general. And so with that said, because I know you guys talked about education a lot. So for those individuals that may not have the the right insurance, what are some of the places they can go to to kind of get those answers? 
you may want to see what's in your community. Places like NAMI, places uh, like local mental health authorities oftentimes have sliding fee scales and do community programs that are free of charge, right? Are strictly educational based and their partnership with schools and different things like that uh, are things that I would definitely encourage uh, young people to be able to see. But you also have, when you get to more specific spheres, being able to tap into classes, like we do a class called Mental Health First Aid, where we get to teach just some of those basic skills to adults in communities. And and oftentimes that doesn't have anything to do with insurance, but to be able to connect, you know, at your schools, uh, at your community uh, mental health resources. I also tell young people, don't be afraid to also tell your doctor. You go to your physicians all the time if you got a cold or fever or something mm. like that going on. Listen, they can be a great resource or a hub even for parents as well to be able to call and say, hey, I'm worried about my son or daughter to your doctor, which we never even think of, and them be able to be uh, sort of that caveat to getting and pointing folks in the right direction. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting. I think uh, if we think through some of the uh, social media tools that we have available, I've been pretty amazed how recently people are finding me through, they asked, they just posted on their Facebook page, I'm dealing with this, y'all know anybody, or there is a ask a friend. I think what's happening is people are putting themselves out there. I don't know if it's because it's COVID. I don't know if people are getting to such an extreme where it's like, I don't care, I just need to find the help. Um, but I think it's, especially locally, the reach is not nearly as far as we make it sometimes. Um, and sometimes when people just open up about what's experiencing, going to their clergy and saying, this is what's happening um, and, and being able to let them know that there's, there's a need and, and that partnership that can happen there. But their social media networks, it's pretty amazing how they get you to help that's needed pretty easily. And then the other is, much as I made fun of it earlier, a Google search uh, might get you a long way just to find out what's happening locally. Psychology Today is one of the things that I'm on to be able to, to, to find therapists and find that help. And so the beauty for us right now is there are many avenues for folks to be able to seek it out. I think the hard part becomes payment, insurance or not, any of those things becomes a barrier. Um, but I think finding someone, there are many avenues to making it happen now. Let's look from a kind of alternative uh, to therapy. Uh, if, if there are any individuals that maybe just want to tr at least try to do something themselves, um, is there any alternative uh, methods that you guys uh, try to help brothers out, you know, before they can come to you, some things that they should start doing? I think we always uh, advocate self-care and kind of not to even uh, beat that dead horse, but oftentimes that starts with taking care of your physical health, right? Making sure you're sleeping and eating, taking care of your health and diet and things like that. But exercising, eating well, um, and sleeping are always some of those cores uh, to being able to uh, find wellness in any area of your life. But finding groups, and you know, I think one of the things that are kind of coming to my mind, Keith, is the power of the Black family and having the sense of community that oftentimes we have culturally, I couldn't think about the power of if in your friend circle or in your uh, family group, if just one person had the thought to say, 
I'm going to make this a reality and ask a question, right? Mm-hmm. And if and if every single group had that person that was daring enough to kind of start up that awkward conversation or to pass out some information uh, to maybe an auntie or an uncle or a brother, how much that would kind of begin a conversation towards wellness, I think is a very, uh, something that's doable as well. Yeah, just a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And- and you, Michael? Yeah, I'm going to echo all of those. I, well, some of the very first questions I ask people in the MRI office, are you sleeping? Are you exercising? What does your eating look like? If those are off, we got we have a huge obstacle already to overcome because your wellness is off. The other is, are you getting sunlight, right? Especially right now in the pandemic. Uh, are you being exposed to vitamin D? And for us specifically, we are already vitamin D deficient. And so um, we're already on the down curve, right? And so are we getting exposure to vitamin D as a huge part of that? The other thing is, and Brandon, you were hitting on this, but I think this is huge, is are you in isolation? Who are you connected to? And so part of the obstacles, I don't want to go talk to a therapist, right? I want to, well, that tells me you're probably not talking to anybody. And so who is, who have you allowed and who can you put in your, in your circle that you can't connect with? And so I, I tell people all the time is a therapist isn't, not everybody has to have a therapist. Not everybody needs to go to a therapist, but who are you letting in? Who are you breaking down those barriers with? And allowing them inside, allowing them to connect with you at whatever level that is and being your support. And so if we're in isolation, we're not going to do well. And so making sure that they're connecting to someone, I think that's other men, um, definitely family members, uh, but allowing them to go connect, be connected to someone else and finding a way, finding an out that's healthy. Right. And so sometimes our outs become drinking, sex, any of those things, those become our out sports. Um, but are you doing something that's healthy that gives you a chance to disconnect, right? So that means not being responsible, not being in charge, not having to be the strong one, but gives you a chance to get away. So if it's fishing, golfing, whatever it is, do you have a out and have something that's giving you some energy? Yeah. And that's very important, especially with the whole isolation part. Cause I know, uh, one of the things like just on my job, you know, being the only, well, up until recently, well, the only black male in the group, even though we had um, students that we worked with were, were male, but we didn't see them often. It, it was a little bit isolating. If we are married and we tend to work, you know, we're family oriented, worry about our families, making sure they're OK and not necessarily take care of our needs and what we may need, just not just to be to be men or just to be whole, you know, not whole, but to be individuals. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have to really, and so I kind of created a, a men's group for that fact to go out and just, just say, maybe, maybe either watch the game or just do some activities or just, you know, walk around to let you know, it's like, look, because those, those are the kind of things that will um, break down the barriers to share, you know, a couple of uh, minutes or networking where you, you may meet them for a few minutes and talk about, well, what do you do? And, you know, that's not going to be, that's not going to be enough. The other part of that, and we've, we've kind of, you know, we, we, we've had our opinion about role of spirituality, but I think that that's another alternative as well, right? Healthy view of uh, getting involved in church, getting involved back with your spirituality and finding a greater purpose, mission, drive, Mm -hmm. those types of things um, are things that are very helpful within our community. You know, we just always, I think, pairing that portion with a good bit of our uh, initial conversations, just making sure that it's a healthy view, right? And knowing that, hey, 
God loves you, man. <laughs> you know yeah. what you've gone through, and and no matter what, if 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 the people you're listening to and talking to every day aren't telling you that God loves you, no matter what you've done, and not being judgmental, hey, you're in the wrong group, right? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> One of the things I always want to do is check in with you guys. How are you guys feeling? What's on your minds as men? Well, you know, I, like I said, I've been uh, I've been sick for the last few days, and uh, I've had a lot of thinking time, <laughs> probably more than one needs. It's one of those, you know. First off, was thinking, did I have corona? So I got that test taken care of. So I'm only left with the conclusion that maybe it was the flu. Honestly, on the forefront of my mind is trying to figure out how do I best equip my boys and my family to be the best that they can be. And that's by my lead and who I am and what I'm about, but also trying to empower them to figure out what that is in their life and uh, move forward in that. And so it's truly, that's the constant thing on my mind of thinking through, I only got a short period of time. My Mm -hmm. oldest is be 14 um, here in December and technically four to five more years, that's it. And He's moving on. And so really trying to be my best so that they can be the best that they can be. And I do that not just with them, but I think I feel like I do that in my practice. I do that in everything that I do. Um, but they are definitely at the forefront. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I have a 17-year-old and 13-year-old. So I, I hear you on that fact. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think in the, in the current climate, you know, one of the biggest things, you know, we, you mentioned even earlier, Brandon, this whole thing about fear trying to help them understand that fear can be healthy, but it definitely is not going to something that should drive you. And so don't live your life out of fear when it comes to the community, police, or any of those things. We're not going to live out of fear. That doesn't get us anywhere. And unfortunately, it gets many people in a, in a bad place. Um, but helping them understand who they are and not being driven by fear is huge. Brandon? I, I think for me, um, currently, especially you, yeah, just like right now, uh, my family's dealing with some grief. We recently lost uh, my father-in-law. And uh, just dealing with that, and I think, what hits to the forefront of my mind is the balance. Uh, we talk about this notion of strength as black men. And one of the things I tell uh, other black men is it, it's about balance. It's not about, you know, kind of taking this long haul to becoming like oversensitive towards things, you know, uh, crying all the time, but also realizing it's okay to. On the forefront of my mind, amongst all of the different things that are happening sociologically as well, uh, for me and my family, I, I'm just kind of tackling how do I lead in a way that shows like, you know, my sons and my daughter who's nine, but my sons are a little bit younger, six and three guys. So, you know, how do I, how do I set that foundation right now that we're talking about of raising men that and raising a woman as well that can be strong, but at the same time have the capability of recognizing how she feels, how they feel, talk about that and feel encouraged, but also not release the power of their history, right? As powerful young Black people in my family and in supporting my wife. I don't know. that I, It feels contradictory at times, but it's a new knowledge. It's a new balance of being able to feel while at the same time show a strength that it's okay. Yeah, that's awesome from you guys. I think you're doing a great, a great thing. And thank you guys for coming on. Basically, if someone needs to get a hold of you or how would how would they do that if they're in the texas area or if it's national how would they how could they do that yeah the easiest way is my website 
wholelifepriorities.com. It's W-H-O-L-E, lifepriorities.com. Uh, that's got email, it's got phone numbers, all of those things. Best way to be able to contact me. Same thing, uh, williamscounseling.org. Uh, you can check out the website and shoot me an email at bwilliamslpc at williamscounseling.org um, and reach out. We've got a Facebook page as well, but yeah, those, those are probably be the primary places. Great. Well, I just want to say thank you guys for being on this evening. Thanks. It's great. And before I go, my, my condolences, uh, Brandon, to your, your family. Thank you, man. Thank you. This is truly an impactful episode. In our communities, we need to stop mislabeling black men with mental health issues and educate ourselves. If we as black men are having issues, we need to seek a local therapist in our area or a support group and challenge our local officials to make sure there is a crisis team in place and our police are better trained so we won't have another Walter Wallace or Daniel Prude. Black Men Speak was written and produced by me, Keith Dent, and edited by Grace Chung. You can find our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and Pandora. So please share and subscribe. And as always, we like to end with a quote, and it comes from Olympic gold medalist Jesse Owens. The battles that count aren't the ones for gold medals. The struggles within yourself, the invisible, inevitable battles inside all of us, that's where it's at. This is Keith from the Black Men Speak Podcast.